Welcome to worship at Salem Alliance Church. Let's join Steve Fowler, lead pastor, as he begins. We are back to our series on Jesus. And uh, you'll remember when we started this, uh, this sermon series that's also connected to our Bible studies, that uh, we have been looking at the person of Christ and uh, looking at Jesus through the eyes of his first followers. Uh, in a way, sort of imagining that if we had uh, the, 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 the faces of those, the people that we're looking at, these 24 uh, first followers up here on the platform, and we gave them some time on the stool, what, what picture would they paint for us? What would be the angle on uh, their encounter with Jesus that they'd want to share? Maybe it was just a moment they had with Jesus, or perhaps, as it was for the disciples, it was years that they got to spend with Jesus. What If they just had just to distill it down to one idea, what would be the one thing that they would share with us? And uh, we started the series by uh, looking through the eyes of John the Baptist and seeing that he, would, that he would paint the picture of Jesus being the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. Uh, we looked through the eyes of Nicodemus at Jesus and, and learned that you can't behave your way into the kingdom of God. You're born into it. And that, that famous conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. We looked through the eyes of John the disciple. Remember John the disciple who had, who had come from this, this world of doing life a certain way and thought that if that's the way you did life there, that surely must be the way you do life in, in the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells him, uh, that, that's not how we do things here. The, the highest kingdom ethic is love. Love one another. Love one another. And Jesus just pounded that into John. And John got it. And that became his mantra of loving one another. And as we've, we've continued this in the, in the Bible study uh, series, we, perhaps you have uh, did the study on the, the, the young boy, the five loaves and two fish, and the, the widow's might, and you learned about uh, generosity from Jesus' perspective. And, and we're back to uh, this, this, this really looking at Jesus through the eyes of his first followers. And today we're looking at the story of Joseph. Story of Joseph, uh, the one that, that's found in Matthew chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 1, looking at verses 18 through 24. And as we look at Jesus through the eyes of Joseph, I think we, we need to understand there really isn't a lot of information we have about Joseph. So this just little section here is a, is a big chunk of what we do know. Now as you're finding your way there, and we'll read this, that section in a, in, a, in a moment, let me just pose a question to you. What do you do when people think less of you because of your association with Jesus? What do you do when people think less of you? Perhaps they ridicule you. Perhaps they question your intelligence. Uh, perhaps they uh, just sort of uh, sneer. In, in some countries, we know that there's significant persecution because of people's connection to Jesus. But from our vantage point in a country we're very blessed in, what do you do when, when people think less of you because you are a Christ follower? Maybe uh, you're a high schooler. You didn't grow up in a Christian home. You got some friends who are Christians, and, and they invite you to an event. It's an event at their church, and you like these guys, and you just kind of want to hang out with them. And as you go, uh, you, you listen to a speaker, you hear some music, maybe there's a drama, maybe there's a movie. But, but somewhere along the way, there's an invitation to become a follower of Jesus, and your heart has been captured by this. And you sense God drawing you, and you begin to take your first steps. You decide that you're going to follow Christ, you're going to turn away from an old life, and you're going to walk in the, in the way of Jesus Christ. You see Him as your Lord, your leader, you see him as your savior, your forgiver of 
your sins. And even as you make that decision, you begin to play out in your mind, how is the conversation going to go back at home? Because mom and dad, they're, they're anti-church. They had some negative experience, some hurtful experiences uh, at church, perhaps. And you're wondering, how am I going to tell them what I've done? Because they indeed will think less of me. In fact, it may be a heated, heated discussion. You're sort of at this fork of the road, and you're wondering, if I do tell them, this could bring some pain into my life. If I don't tell them, maybe, maybe that would be best, because that would save a lot of pain. What do you do? Or maybe you're a college student, and you're one of those, uh, those classic uh, classes where the professor likes to, to point out who the Christian is and, and takes a certain enjoyment in embarrassing Christians. And uh, you, you're in college, you just want four years of peace, you just want to fly under the radar, and, uh, but this one class, maybe it's a philosophy class, maybe it's not, uh, you, you know it's going to happen, and you're wondering, how do I avoid all this? Because people will indeed think less of me. I'll be an object of ridicule. Everyone who sees me is, no, I'm, I'm one of them. What do you do? Because what you could do is you could just let, you could just sort of hide the whole idea that you're a Christ follower. And, and, and that, that could make things go a lot smoother for you. Or if you do let it out that you're a Christian, it, college could be painful, be difficult. What do you do? Or maybe you're married and you've been married for 10 15, 20 years. It's been a good marriage. It's, it's been healthy and, um, uh, and, and there's been a lot of peace at home. I mean, really, there really has been a, a good marriage. And the peace is there except when the whole topic of spirituality comes up. Your husband sort of rolls his eyes when you talk about Jesus. When your kids were younger and when you took them to church, when you took them to Sunday school, every once in a while your, your, your husband would make sort of a snide remark and say, don't turn those kids into Bible thumpers like, like you are. And then one year you had the courage to, to invite your husband to come to a Christmas Eve service. And even when you let the invitation out of your mouth, your husband just shot back to you this sort of demeaning, belittling comment like, Oh, right, you think I need God. And maybe it's been so painful that you're, you're at this fork in the road, so to speak, and you're wondering, would it be just easier for my marriage if I shelved my Bible for a while? If I just avoided any conversation about God? If I just maybe backed off on going to church? I mean, what do you do? What do you do when people think less of you, perhaps ridicule, ridicule you, or perhaps make life painful for you because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I think the story of Joseph is a great story in answering that question because Joseph, he indeed comes to a fork in the road in which he unknowingly will come to, a, to this crossroads where he will be making a decision should he distance himself from Jesus for the sake of just making life a little bit smoother for him or should he believe what he is being told about this, this baby that his wife-to-be is carrying. What do you do when people think less of you because you are following after God? 
Grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Would you stand with me as I read the text today, beginning in verse 18, finishing in verse 24? I'll read, and if you'd follow on, that'd be great. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Now, just quickly before we dive into this story, let's, let's make some observations about who Joseph is. Again, we don't know tons about this guy, but there are some conclusions that we can come to about who, uh, who Joseph, the, the father who adopts uh, this, this son, Jesus, into his family. Uh, Joseph, is, he's got royal blood in his, in his line. He's a descendant of David. Remember King David? Uh, David is the, the ruler over Israel in Israel's glory days. I mean, these were the great days. And David was the king who had a, a covenant with God. And, uh, and Joseph is, if he were to track his genealogy, if he were to, to, to build his, his uh, family tree, he would look back and see that he's related to, to King David. And it's from King David that the, the Messiah has been prophesied to come. So Joseph has royal blood in his veins, but, but we can also safely come to the conclusion that he's a poor man. He's a poor man, because if you fast forward in the story, and Jesus has been born, and it's day eight, and Mary and Joseph are dedicating this baby, uh, there's a, a sacrifice that's offered, and Joseph and Mary bring two pigeons. Now that was common in those days, after you had a baby. Uh, you, you, you learn this from Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12 uh, states that, uh, let me just read it to you, verses 7 and 8. Uh, These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. So if if you're a mom, you've just had a baby, this is what you need to do. Um, If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, or one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. So if you've had a baby and you want to be spiritually clean, what you need to do is bring a sacrifice, you bring a lamb. But if you can't afford a lamb, you bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. And we know that in the account when when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus in and there's this interaction with Anna and Simeon, that they offer two pigeons, which tells you they couldn't afford a lamb. They were probably from a a, a, lower economic status. Joseph may have had royal blood in his veins, but he was a, a poor guy. The third thing that we know about Joseph is that he's a carpenter. 
He, he's a carpenter. And, and don't just think a, a woodworker, because this, this original, in the language here, the original language here in the, in the Greek, it's, this is a guy who, who works with his hands with, uh, with wood, uh, with metal, and with stone. Okay, so think contractor. Think a contractor. Think a guy who's a builder. Yes, he worked with wood. Yes, he had carpentry skills. But the skills weren't just limited to working with wood. We know this about him. He's royal blood. He's poor. He's a contractor. The fourth thing that we would know about Joseph is that he has a deep faith in God. Matthew says that he's a righteous man. We see in his decision-making processes, he's considering what would please God. The fifth thing that we know about Joseph is that we never hear him speak. We, in the Christmas story, we hear from a king named Herod. We hear magi speak. We hear even shepherds talk. We certainly hear from Mary. She responds. She interacts with an angel. In fact, she has a song that she sings. But uh, Joseph, we never hear him speak in first person which might lead us to conclude that he's sort of a guy who... Uh, the next point there is that he's sort of a guy who's in the background. He, he's, he's back in the background. When my kids had a, uh, their, you know, their, their manger scene that they played with, there was Mary and Joseph and animals and camels and all kinds of stuff. And Joseph was... He could have been on the roof or you know, he could have been anywhere in the house. And sometimes when we think about the Christmas story, Joseph is in the background. And, and I think that's probably how he preferred it. He's, he's a quiet guy, and, and actually his story sort of fades out in the Gospels. Um, somewhere after Jesus' 12th birthday and before Jesus' earthly ministry, Joseph disappears. You remember that story when Mary and Joseph, they go to, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast? They go there, Joseph, uh, Jesus is 12 years old. They're having the feast, and then they're going to go back home. And as they're going back home after celebrating this feast, they're a day into their journey, and they're doing their head count, like maybe some of you do after you leave church, and you realize you've left a kid behind. Um, am I the only one who's done that? Because I've done that. Uh, and uh, they, they're like, oh my goodness, we have left Jesus behind. And so they go back to Jerusalem, and they're looking around, and they are panicked, I would imagine. And then they find Jesus in the temple. He's with the teachers. And they're amazed. And Jesus gives this puzzling response to his parents. Didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? That just must have just got their mind going. It's after that interaction in Jerusalem, when Jesus is 12 years old, that we get the end of hearing about Joseph. And again, most scholars believe that somewhere between age 12 of Jesus and when he's going into his earthly ministry, Joseph passes away. He dies. Jesus on the cross entrusts his mother to his disciple John. So Joseph, he sort of fades away. And his story comes to a close. Yet his story is a story full of tension. It's, it's, it's full of inner, inner struggle because here is a guy who's at a fork in the road. He's got to come to a major decision because what he is about to hear is going to just turn his world upside down. Joseph is pledged to be married to, to, to Mary. He's betrothed. He's, he's engaged. And, and don't think engagement like in our culture when you, you think about someone getting down on one knee and, and offering a, a ring to a potential bride. This is a lot more complex in this culture back in the day of Joseph and Mary. Uh, 
betrothal was a very serious thing. In fact, to break a betrothal meant to go through divorce. Um, how it would have worked for, for Joseph is that he would have, once he decided that he wanted to marry Mary, uh, he would have gathered together a bride price. He would have pooled his resources and he would have made a, a, a list of promises, covenant promises that he would bring into this marriage. And he would have to meet with Mary's father and have a conversation with her. Now, guys who are married, you remember the day you had the conversation with your, uh, your future father-in-law? Uh, I was blessed because I was living a long way from Trina's dad. So I just got on the phone. And it was much easier on the phone than face-to-face. Some of you were face-to-face. Well, Joseph, he would have sat down in the home of Mary's father... And he would have, with Mary not in the room, he would have negotiated with dad about a price for his wife. They, they would have bartered back and forth. How does that make you feel, ladies? You know, how much are you worth? This is what Joseph is doing with, with Mary's father. And they would come to an agreement at some point in time on the bride price. And once the bride price is settled... And once Joseph pays the bride price, then the list of promises of the covenant are put on the table. Here's what I promise. And once there's an agreement on the promises, the price is paid, the promises are on the table, then Mary is invited in the room, and Joseph, who has brought with him a skin of wine, pours a cup of wine, and the covenant is sealed as each one drinks from this cup. Now, let me just step back for a moment because you know that Jesus used a lot of imagery, a lot of language from a Jewish wedding when he's talking about the kingdom of God. And so this is an example of, of a Jewish wedding, a betrothal. The cup is sealed. The covenant is sealed by the drinking of the cup. And then what would happen is Joseph would leave and he'd return back to his father. In fact, he would tell Mary, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. So Mary would stay there at home and she would learn about what it's going to be to be a wife. Joseph goes back and Joseph's father is going to oversee Joseph preparing a place for his future bride. And at some point in time in a traditional Jewish wedding, the the husband, the bridegroom is going to come back not on a mutually agreed date, on a date that the husband deems that the wedding is going to happen. There is no date on the calendar that the wife-to-be knows about. She does not know when her wedding day is. And she does no responsibility in preparing for that wedding day. She just needs to ready herself for it. Think about that, ladies. Your husband's in charge of your wedding. (laughs) Right? You have no idea when it's going to happen. You have no idea what the colors are going to be. Well... The, what would happen in a traditional Jewish wedding is that the bridegroom returned and he'd return with a shout. The, the, the wife-to-be would have an idea of when the wedding was going to happen, so she just had to prepare herself. The shout would happen and the, the, the bride-to-be with her, her female attendants would leave the house and the, the bridegroom would come with his attendants and there would be a procession throughout the village and they'd carry torches and they'd make their way back to this, this house that's been prepared and there would be a feast that would last for about seven days. It'd be a huge party. It'd be a fabulous feast that would take place. And remember John chapter 2, that the wedding in Cana? It's a, it's a long party. That, that party, they run out of wine, and Jesus, you know, Mary tells him to do something, and he turns the water into wine. 
This is a long party. This is a festive celebration. This is a time everyone looks forward to. But here's the problem. Joseph and Mary never get the party. As far as we know. There is no recorded wedding date in the Gospels. Because all of that came to a screeching halt after the the cup of wine is sipped by each person and the covenant is sealed. Joseph leaves and he thinks it's all set until the day, the infamous day, when he gets the text message from Mary. Hey, can we get together? I want to have a conversation. Ah, oh, I can't. I love just being with my fiance. I love. I love. I can't wait for this date. And he's sitting down, maybe at the table, and he's he just can't wait to be with Mary. And she shares the news. I got something important I need to tell you. And this is going to be hard for you to understand. But I'm pregnant. You're pregnant. How could that happen? Why? Why would you let that happen? Who is he? Well, that's that's the difficult part. You see, there is no other man. Really. (laughs) Tell me more. I'm interested to hear this one. Well, see, I, I had this dream and this angel showed up and he, and he said that, that the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow me and, and that, that there, a baby would be conceived in me and he was going to be a boy. And, and he, he, he told me to rejoice and put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute. You expect me to believe God put a baby in you. You do know that Joseph didn't buy it. He didn't he didn't buy the story. We know this because he is coming to the conclusion that he's going to quietly divorce her. Which by the way is very honorable for him because he's got some significant options on the table that he can turn to. You know when how relationships sort of dissolve and get pretty painful, that things can get be very, things can be very volatile. Some of you know the pain of that. This could turn into a very ugly scene uh, because in Mosaic law, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, we read that Joseph has some options because, well, let me just read the verse. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. Let me explain this to you. Joseph doesn't believe the whole angel story. What he thinks is that there's a man in a village who has slept with his wife who was a virgin pledged to be married. So one of the things he could do is he could chase justice and he could go on a witch hunt, go through the village and find out who is the guy who slept with my wife, grab him by the back of the collar, take his wife to be married and take him to the city gate and have justice exercised on them. The death penalty. That's a play he can make. But the story tells us that he decides to quietly divorce her so that he doesn't publicly disgrace her because this is an honor-based culture. 
There is a lot of shame that's going to be on this single mom. And Joseph is not interested in seeing it played out on the front page of the Nazareth tabloids. He's at a fork in the road. And he knows that if he stays with Mary, that there's going to be a lot of disgrace and shame that's going to come his way because Mary has been unfaithful and everyone in town knows it. Don't think of a a town or a village of 100,000 people. Think of a town or a village of about 100 people. You know, where everyone knows each other's business. Your comings and your goings. Your successes, your failures. And Joseph is at a fork in the road and he's decided that he is going to quietly distance himself, albeit unknowingly, from Jesus because of the angel story. And so he starts going this way until he has a dream himself. An angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Joseph, son of David, don't rush too far past that line. Joseph, you who has royal blood in his veins, you're royalty, Joseph. Don't be afraid. I know there's apprehension in your spirit to go down that road because that's going to bring disgrace and, 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 and dishonor and, and some shame with it. But don't be afraid. For what is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. And this child, and this is where I started breaking in my own paraphrase, This child that everyone else is going to see as born in sin is actually going to be the child that's going to remove all the sin from everyone who turns to him. And Joseph has this dream. He wakes up in the morning. He's been at this fork of the road. He's going to quietly divorce and he puts all those plans on halt and he takes Mary as his wife. How does he do it? Because some of you are in situations where your association with Jesus has other people looking at you like you're, you're foolish. They're thinking less of you. Maybe they're mocking you. Maybe it's even cost you some business like it would have for Joseph. This is a building contractor. This is a small town. You don't think that that might cost him some business? You don't think that that might make a poor man even poorer? Some of you are dealing with this in, in your own life. How did he do it? I see a couple simple ways that he does it. And the first one is simply this. Joseph embraces the mystery of the virgin birth. Let me spell this out for you because that might sound a little bit nebulous. I mean, we need to just receive the mystery or embrace the mystery. This is a rational, logical, clear-thinking man. He's a contractor. He's got blueprints on the table as he builds. He knows exactly where the nail goes. He knows how all the pieces fit together. This guy's got dirt under his fingernails who thinks things through. He knows, he plans, he thinks. And in one night's dream, he shelves all that rational, logical thinking and he believes that God has indeed conceived this child in Mary's womb. That's unbelievable when you think about it. Because... Because he could have maybe received a little more information about this whole thing that was going on. I mean, 
Maybe, maybe Joseph could have said, you know, I, I really appreciate the fact he told me not to be afraid and reminded me that I'm a son of David. That's wonderful to know too. But couldn't you have at least told me to go down to the synagogue and, and pulled off the shelf the scroll of Isaiah? And couldn't the angel of the Lord say, said to Joseph, pull that scroll of Isaiah off the shelf and turn to page chapter 7 and read verse 14 because this is really going to help you, Joseph. This is gonna, it's going to make sense for you when you read this because what you're going to read prophesied 700 years ago, Joseph, is therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here it is, Joe. Here's your sign. The virgin, that's Mary, will be with child. Remember the date? When she told you she was pregnant? The virgin will be with child and and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God is with us. Joseph doesn't even get a Bible verse. All this rational, logical thinking building contractor gets is a dream where an angel says to him, don't be afraid, do it. And maybe you're here today and you're at a fork in the road and you're looking for, for all the, the questions to be answered and maybe all that God's going to give you is just a little picture. And will you embrace the mystery? Will you receive that which perhaps is hard to explain to your friends? Because that would have been the case for Joseph. In fact, there's this lingering cloud of questioning that hangs over Jesus in his ministry. Remember the Pharisees who say to him, well, at least we know who our father is. Luke writing in the gospel that Jesus was the son of a carpenter or so it was thought. This choice to, to stay connected to Jesus is going to bring disgrace, dishonor, and shame. And maybe you're the same place. And maybe all you have is a mysterious sense that this is what God is doing. And for Joseph, it was enough. That's how he did it. The second thing, what he did was he just was a humble listener. He listened to God all along the way. He had, he had ears to hear what the Spirit was saying. Take Mary to be your wife. Okay. Next day he does it. Take your family and move from Bethlehem to Egypt. I'm having to rearrange my entire life over this baby. He picks up everything and moves to Egypt. He's down there making a life for himself down in Egypt. And an angel comes down there and says, okay, time to move back home. He gets up moves back home. This, this is a guy who listens with humility to what the Spirit is saying. And then... He's a man who just takes courageous action. He expresses faith. Joseph, do not be afraid. Why would the angel say that to him? Because he was afraid. Just like you and I are when we're sitting at that fork in the road and knowing that if we go down that path, it's not going to be convenient. We could go down this path and it'd be so much easier. (laughs) We think. But think about what Joseph would have missed if he'd gone with plan A. Divorce her quietly. Think about what maybe you might miss if you go with plan A. What do you do when people think less of you because you're a Christ follower? I think we do what Joseph did. We, we receive the mystery, embrace the mystery. We may not have all the answers to our questions. We, we have some 
but we can receive the mystery of the virgin birth or whatever it is that God is doing in us, saying to us as we're humble listeners and taking courageous steps of faith. Now, Joseph is among the 24. We invite him up and say, Joseph, take a seat on the stool. We don't know much about you, Joseph, but we do know that you're an honorable man, responsible, entrusted with the Messiah. What's the picture that you would paint for us, Joseph? What would you tell us about Jesus from your perspective? Because your perspective is so unique. What would Joseph say? I think this honest, hard-working man would be very honest with us and say, he is the Jesus who just may tarnish your reputation. He's the Jesus who just may damage your self-image or your public image because of your connection to him. The road that you walk in following Jesus isn't a, a slow downhill grade that's lined with people cheering you on. Now, that does happen every now and then, but I think Joseph would describe a road that's steep and uphill, filled with potholes, with people lined up on the side, perhaps scoffing. Wasn't that the road Jesus walked on? And didn't Jesus tell us that if they hate me, they will hate you also? See, because if you're on this journey, you come to a fork and road, and you're on this road because it's, well, I just want to be a good person, you're going to change lanes when life gets difficult. Unless you're convinced in who Jesus is as Joseph and Mary were. And the question for us then becomes, whose reputation are you living for? Is your life being lived for your own personal reputation? Or will you live your life in such a way that you'll endure hardship because your life is all about exalting the name of Jesus Christ, whatever the price may be? Whose reputation will you live for? He is the Jesus who just may tarnish your reputation. You've been listening to Steve Fowler, lead pastor at Salem Alliance Church. If you've enjoyed this message, we'd love for you to be our guest at our worship service on our main campus at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem. Worship services are Saturday at 5 and 6.30 p.m. and again on Sunday at 8, 9.30 and 11 a.m. If you'd like to receive a free Bible and more information on how to become a Christ follower, feel free to call our office at 503-581-2129. We'd love to know how we can serve you. And once again, that's Salem Alliance Church at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem.